Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 20, starting from verse 45 through chapter 21, verse 4, and can be found on page 745 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 20, verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. May God bless the reading of his word. to work on the timing of that, but okay. (laughs) Beware of the teachers of the law, the pastors, the seminary professors, because they like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the banquets. Now, this has had two purposes, not just a gimmick, you know, but actually there's a second purpose to it as well. <laughs> I just got a little, little footnote here. You're really lucky that you're not married to a pastor because, you know, you know then your spouse would embarrass you quite regularly. <laughs> I just happened to see my wife sitting with her head ducked down, so I thought I'd come here. <laughs> uh, but the second point of it is this. You know, God speaks to us through the ancient biblical text. And sometimes that's a bit of a challenge. You know, last week we saw that in in his time, what Jesus was telling his audience was, pull back from political engagement. And what I stipulated was, I think what Jesus is telling us is, move ahead into political engagement. And how can you do that? How can you just turn Jesus' words entirely around? But here's the point. They asked Jesus, specifically, should we revolt? Should we have an insurrection against the Roman government? And he says, no. Well, he says, not over taxes. Pay your taxes. That doesn't matter. But if they insist that you worship the Roman emperor, then you don't revolt because Christians do not instigate violence. Instead, he says, you go willing to die. So in their context, they have to pull back because there were people in the first century ready to revolt. 
And in AD 70, AD 68, 67, 68, until AD 70, they did revolt, and the whole city, the whole country was wiped out, the temple was destroyed. But in our context, you know, our question to Jesus is not, should we revolt? Should we have a revolution? Maybe if that were our question, Jesus would say, hey, pull back a bit. But our question is, should we care about politics at all? And so to Jesus, while he said to them, you know, pull back, to us, arguably, because of our different situation, then he's saying, move ahead. Now, today's passage, particularly this bit about flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplace and so forth, you know, if that's directly applicable to our situation, what it says is that pastors should never preach in robes. Now, of course, I don't have a, pa- I have a, this is an academic robe, but, you know, Anglicans, we, my wife and I both studied in the Anglican Theological College, and they have like three layers of robe. You know, you got a surplus, a cassock, and a something else. I forget the name. Anyway, they got three layers of robe, and, and Presbyterians are wear, wear robes to preach. And, and if all we do is just take this text out of the first century and bring it into the 21st, then we could end up, basically, why I wore this is, it's farcical. For us, this is, you know, Jesus becomes irrelevant. It's just become, this is like, this is not even a serious farce. It's not a satire. This is more like uh, one of those, you know, dumb and dumber shows. You know, we wouldn't think about doing this. And, and in fact, you know, they, he could talk to the preachers and, and Bible teachers that way because they had high status. And today, I, I don't think most preachers and pastors, not most, have high status. So the question is, when we read, you know, God speaks to us through what he said to them. But if our situation is significantly different from theirs, then the question becomes, how would God speak to us through this text? What's the point of this text to us? Excuse me. Now, I should say to my own defense, I never bought this thing. Nor did I steal it. I was the first college grad in my family, so, and it took me like almost five years to get my PhD, so, or my PhD, my doctorate. So, so when I finally got it, my parents were so relieved they bought the thing to celebrate. <laughs> All right. Now, the question is, you know, so we almost, it always takes a little bit more work to do this right. Because the first question always has to be, what was Jesus saying to them in their situation? And then only second, you know, often we want to start with, what does this Bible verse say to me? But we can't, you know, it, it was written to them. So we, what did God say to them through this text? Then what does God say to us through this text? So turn with me, page 745, Luke chapter 20, 45, and we're going to cross over to chapter 21. Bear this in mind. Uh, whenever you come into a new text, you've got to ask, where does it start and where does it end? Because these chapter divisions, they're not in the original Bible. You don't have any punctuation, any chapter division, any verse markers, none of that stuff is in the Greek. It's only once they started putting, printing this on a printing press to make it easier for people, they put in all these things. And some of them are quite arbitrary. So I would argue, actually, that this passage begins with 2045, where you have Jesus warning about the teachers of the law. But he then twins it. Luke then twins it with this other passage about a poor widow. And we have to read them together to get what is the point. Luke joins the accounts, and he gives us some links between them, so we realize that we're meant to read the one in the light of the other. So notice the links. I just want to demonstrate the point that we're to read them together. 
Here you have the teachers, and one of the accusations against them is that they abuse widows. They devour widows' houses. So then you follow with a story about a widow. You know, Luke is obviously intending these things to play off against each other. How did they abuse widows? It was a financial abuse. They abused widows by basically stealing their homes. They devour widows' houses. They take their homes away from them. And he doesn't tell us how, probably through urging them to make donations to the church. And then we have a story about a widow who gave up all her money in the temple. The two stories are linked. You've got an elite. You've got the spiritual elite, the, the religious teachers and the scribes. In a time when people really desperately wanted to know, how do I please God? How do I avoid his judgment? And if you wanted to know how the Bible applied to your life, you went to these scribes. They were crucial. In a very religious society, they played the most strategic, pivotal role for helping people follow God. So you have the elite. And then you have this person, this next story, is about somebody who's triply insignificant. She's a woman, she's a widow, and she's poor. So you have the elite contrasted with the mm, irrelevant, the fringe. And then you have the ostentatious, as the um, scribes, as the teachers of the law go through the city. They're greeted by people because they're famous, they're greeted by people, they're respected, and they're thriving on the attention. And then you have this widow who nobody particularly notices except Jesus. So what Luke is doing, he's not telling us what his point is. He's showing us what his point is. He's giving us two vignettes, two case studies, side by side. And we compare them and we see the similarity and we see the differences and we can infer his point because that's how stories work. They don't hit you over the head with the point, you infer the point. So let's take a look at the first story, teachers of the law. We find three characteristics here, verses 46 to 47. Beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Three characteristics of these elite teachers of the law. First of all, to their credit, they do something very important. They're teachers of the law. In a time when the Old Testament was reduced to 600 plus commands, they were the people who knew those commands. But more than that, most of those had commands had been written centuries, even a millennium earlier. So they said, in our age, in our day and time, given that we're not in their same situation, they basically did what I'm trying to do now, is they said, how does that text that God gave them, God said to them, do this, don't do that, how does that apply to us? You want to know how to follow God, how to honor God. And that was their role. They did something significant for God. And that was creditworthy. They needed scribes. Maybe the way they did it wasn't always creditworthy, but their function was very valuable. The second thing we see about them, verses 46 and 47. They, verse 46. They like to flow around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces. They love the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. This is a day and age when these scribes are held in high regard. They got the best seats, they got the most attention, and it flattered their ego. So they're doing something important. But beyond doing something important, they enjoy 
being important. And the third characteristic, they devour widows' houses. They are basically, they're exploiting the perks. Not, they're exploiting the praise they get, and they're exploiting the financial advantage they have in urging widows how to leave behind their inheritance, not for their families, but for the temple. So we see that they're doing something significant, but they're thriving on their public recognition, and they're abusing their position. Now contrast that with the woman. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Compare her with the teachers of the law. She, too, is doing something significant. Not really significant when measured by the cultural standards. She was putting in, we wouldn't call it two pennies, but maybe two days' worth of blue-collar workers' wages. She put in a little bit of money. By cultural standards, a little bit of money. But to God, it was hugely significant because that's all she had to live on. So she, like the elite teachers of the law, was doing something significant, at least in God's eyes. But notice where she went right and they went wrong. She draws no attention to herself. As they walk through the streets, everybody's watching and applauding and greeting. As she walks through the streets, who cares? She's the fringe. You know, female, widow, poor. The kind of people that get neglected every day in their city and in ours. She draws no attention to herself. She doesn't announce, I'm giving all that I have to live on. She just quietly gives. And the third thing about her is this. She doesn't exploit her position for gain. She has no position to exploit. She gives, and in return, receives nothing, and asks for nothing. She gives out of pure devotion. So basically, what the text is saying to them is this in the first century. What the text is saying to those readers is this. How do you measure real, true spirituality? And there's three characteristics this text gives us. We do something substantial in the service of God. Something significant in God's service. Without drawing attention to ourselves. Only giving. Never trying to receive in return. That's basically what the text would say to them. How do you know whether or not you're spiritual? This is not how I can tell if somebody else is spiritual. How do I know whether I'm spiritual? Because I'm somehow significantly serving God. And, and I'm doing it without drawing any attention to myself. I'm not serving myself. It's not for my reputation. It's not for my praise. I'm serving God. Drawing no attention to myself. And I'm giving a lot more out of this than I'm getting. That's what the text said to them. Now, concretely, what would it look like for us today? And, who, you know, who would it affect? Since he's addressing elite teachers of the law, who does it apply to today? Local church pastors. I don't think this applies directly to local church pastors today. Unless maybe... I'm going to take a little bit of scare. I'm, I'm not being offensive. Unless maybe you're Korean... And I don't even know if it still holds true in Korea. 
But there was a time, at least, in Korea, where non-Christian women would be delighted if their daughters married pastors because pastors were so highly elevated. Uh, David and Jackie can tell us later whether that's still the case, but or some of that. But you know, you know, so it was it was an honor. Whereas in Chinese culture, if a woman's son wanted to become a pastor, she would sit down and weep. Right? Mostly, and and I know, you know, I know there are some people here who who treat me with far more deference than I deserve. Not because I'm a good guy, but because I'm a pastor. Not so many here. A lot more here. We're here at 9:30 in the Chinese service. You know, you know. If I go downstairs for for lunch, you know, and and the Chinese side, if they're in line in front of me, they say, "Oh no, pastor, freeze, but pastor, go up front, go up front." And if I go downstairs for lunch at the English ministry in front of me, they say, "Hey, no cuts." <laughs> hey, I'm okay either way. I'm I'm paying a dollar. You're paying two. It's okay. <laughs> so even they, be, you know, but. Mostly, you know, being a pastor is like anything else today. Mostly, it's a pretty competitive business, you know. But there's a few, you know. Maybe here's an example. I think it can apply to places where pastors are really held in too high a regard, and this text can apply direct, quite directly. I think in America, the only pastors probably it really applies to are the celebrity preachers. You know, the guys who are really famous. Let's try this little test. Don't call it out. Just see if you know the answer in your mind. Don't call it out. Tim, Rob, no, 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 don't call it out. Francis, Joel, Brian. Anyway, okay. So, so I, I think this text—it doesn't mean they're bad. I'm not saying they're bad, but this text could be a direct application to their lives because you know when you're getting all that much praise and you're all that prominent and you're all, you know and. Oh, look at this. Joel. You probably don't know, the, though I have another Joel of mine. There's two Joels. Uh, when the president calls you as a pastor. Oh, did I put Rick in that list? Okay, Rick. Okay, when a, when a president calls you as a pastor, not so much to get your advice, but just to make sure your whole, your, your whole demographic won't be offended by what he does. How does that not go to your ego? You know? Um, when you write books and they instantly become bestsellers even before they're in print and available for purchase, how does that not go to your ego? And a remarkable example I'll give you of a positive example here. John Stott. You know, now he's, he's deceased, so he's an older generation. He's even a generation before mine, if you can believe it. You know, John Stott was a remarkable fellow. A very influential pastor. Actually, he got this honorary title of chaplain to the queen. Wrote a lot of books. You know, and, and real kind of an introvert. He never liked to be, you know, he'd go up front and talk, but after that he just kind of disappear. So there are some people, this, this text doesn't rebuke all famous teachers of the law or all famous uh, interpreters, you know, Bible preachers. But it, it does raise a question. We can pray for these people. As somebody's ministry grows, let's pray for them in their community. Because any harm they do could really spread far. I was once listening to it, but you know, it does sometimes apply to famous preachers. I was once listening to a sermon of a guy I like to hear, and 
He began the first 15 or 20 minutes of the sermon telling his congregation all the places he'd been visiting to speak lately. He'd been invited to speak. Oh, I went here and spoke there for one day, and then I had to rush over here and speak there for another day. And then I had to rush here and speak here for another day. And then two days I spent at that conference. And So this can be a problem. You don't worry. Uh, there's no sign it's going to happen to me. You don't have to pray for me, but you can pray for pastors you know that are famous. You know, I think the text applies directly in, in a few cases today. Not a whole lot. But let's think more broadly how it might apply. How about other religious elite? Other than just a pastor-teacher elite. The other religious celebrities, you could say. You see, in the switch from the 80s until this decade, and the switch from modernity to post-modernity, if you like that language, basically there's been a switch from cognitive to emotive. And that's been matched in the church by a switch from uh, strong preaching to strong worship, from, you know, Bible exposition to music. And if you think about it, if I were more current, I could do the same exercise with you I just did a moment ago with pastor's names. I could do this with band names, but, you know, I, I'm really out of date, out of touch. So, you know, the best I could do is jars of, you know, and that's really old, right? <laughs> and, and that's even, I don't think that's old, that's really progressive that I know that. <laughs> yeah, David's laughing at me. He knows a lot more about bands than I know. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the point is, any Christian celebrities, you know, what does it do? We've got to pray for these people if they're celebrities. Because what does it do when they get prominent, then they cross over, and then they crash and burn? It really hurts. So this is a warning directly to them. But it still doesn't help us a lot. Because we're not that. So does this text not apply to us unless we're famous preachers or unless we're a famous band? How about this? How about all religious people? Even the non-elite. What does this text say to us? People like you and me who aren't elite. What does this text say to us? One thing it says. You know, this text is speaking from the top down. Let's look at the text from the bottom up. If the text is telling them, don't be arrogant. Serve. Don't expect to be served. Don't become entitled. If that text is speaking to them from the top down, what's it telling us from the bottom up? How about this? Who do we honor? Who do we follow? Who do we look up to? Famous people who don't even know who we are. Or one another. If we want to commend somebody, who do we commend? You know, the, the guy whose videos I watch on, uh, on the web... You know, because, you know, 10,000 people watch his videos every week. Or do we commend each other who serve in ministries here? Who do we value? Who do we honor? How about as we consider ourselves? We all want to be authentic, right? And I think we often get, what, get it wrong what authenticity is. It seems nowadays... You know, under the influence, I think, of television and all the dramas and the soap operas and, you know, the nighttime stuff. I don't mean the daytime stuff, the nighttime stuff. All these nighttime shows that are dramas, you know, they're not really about police work or hospital, medical, whatever they are. They're really all soap operas. And they're about the dysfunctions of those main characters. And, you know, in one show, everybody's got a dysfunctional dys dysfunction. And the, it seems like a competition. Which character in that show can be more dysfunctional than every other character. 
And under the influence of that stuff, that, then really authenticity begun, became, becomes this. Let me tell you what my dysfunction is. You know? And we kind of blurt all this stuff and somehow that's authentic. Well, no. You know, how, how is authentic? I'm, I'm not saying we hide that stuff. I, I, I do think. Public display occasionally is okay, but I'm not real big on We did that, a lot of that in the 60s and 70s, and I don't think in the long run it helped anybody. You know, private display, private communication about our stuff is important because we need people to help us with it. But what is the first mark of authenticity in this passage? Is that both these people were serving God. So authenticity is not that I got some deep dysfunction and then I share it with a lot of people so they know what's going on in my life. Share it with a few people. But what's the first mark of authenticity here is we see these teachers of the law, they were serving God and other people. And we see this widow, she was serving God and other people. Uh, So if we want to be authentic, first we serve. And secondly, as we serve, we don't draw attention to ourselves. A few of us have to. You know, the band has to, I have to. Uh, It's always more reliable if you get people on stage who are mildly reluctant to be on stage. If people are eager to get on stage, it makes you a little bit nervous because maybe it's going to go to their ego. If they're really reluctant to get on stage, often they just clam up and, and don't function well. So you want to find people who are mildly reluctant to be on stage. But some of us have to do this. Whether we enjoy it or not, it's just part of the job description. But basically, draw no attention to ourselves. And then thirdly, make sure that we give more than we receive. And that's really hard because I get paid. Anything you do, you're giving more than you receive. I get paid. Uh, you know, that's a bit of a, more of a challenge for me. But let, that, let this be how we mark, how we assess, at least some factors in how we assess authentic spirituality. We do something substantial in the service of God. We draw no attention to ourselves. And we focus on giving rather than receiving. I think this text also has something to say about our, to our culture about all elites, even non-religious. Let's take it outside the sphere of the church for a moment. What makes somebody elite today? What things do our culture value? You know, there's obviously celebrities, movie stars, TV stars, sports stars, models. Uh, People who go to prestigious schools often are more elite than those who don't go to prestigious schools. People who enter prestigious fields are, you know, are more prestigious than, or, or, or more elite, higher status than those who don't enter prestigious fields. People with wealth and, and big homes and luxury cars can be more prestigious. What does the text say to our culture and to us as part of that culture? If we want authentic spirituality, you know, this text is dealing with measures of elitism. And in this text, who's the genuinely elite? You know, you've got the scribes, the teachers of the law, and Jesus discounts them. And you've got this poor widow, and Jesus really raises her high, famous for all ages. Let me suggest this. You know, we know what our culture values as elite, and the trouble is that can influence us. All of these things that we looked at, that I mentioned, celebrity, prestigious schools, prestigious fields, wealth, high salary, 
All of these are non-starters in the discussion. Some of these things can be very valuable. I'm not negating the value of an excellent education. I'm not negating the value, or Jesus is not negating the value you can do in certain occupations. But these things hold no value in the eyes of God, per se, only in the eyes of our culture. So the question is, a lot of you are having kids now. What are you going to hold out if you want your children to be authentically spiritual? What are you going to hold out to them as the chief aim of life? To get into a good school so you can get a prestigious occupation and own a big home? Or to do something significant for God? To ask for nothing in return and not to draw attention to themselves? How are we going to raise our kids? You can understand that the older generation, as immigrants, coming here and fighting for survival in a language they don't know, in a culture that may not be eager to have them, you can understand how they prioritize these things. But how about us? A new generation. We don't have to fight those battles. By all means, go to the best school you can comfortably get into and, and can afford. By all means, go for whatever vocation. But, but that is not what brings you authenticity and spirituality or elitism, elite standing before God. So let it be a secondary consideration. Let this be our primary consideration as we pursue our own careers and as we raise our children. We want them to make a significant contribution to the work of God. We want them not to draw attention to themselves. We want them to give and not take. Now, how about the widow? How, how, what can we learn from the widow for today? Now, here's an important point, I think. I think the point of this story is not that we should learn to give all of our money to the church. This woman gave all her money to the temple. Why is that not the point of the story? That comes just a few verses after Jesus accused the scribes of devouring widows' homes. I think, and you have to evaluate this, but I think that the correlation here is significant. The example of this woman's wholehearted devotion does not become normative. Now, every so often there'll be somebody in the news because they get into trouble in their business and, you know, in their health and wealth gospel. So they were taught if you give more money to the church, then God will bless you and your business will do great. And they give a lot of money to the church and the business goes bankrupt and then the creditors come and sue the church to get the money back. Don't give all your money to the church. We don't want to be sued. I won't defend it if you are, if we are, you know. I don't think that's the point of the story because Jesus has just warned against people being abused, exploited by the church. I think the point of the story is this. She did something substantial in service of God. She drew no attention to herself. She gained nothing. She only gave. What does this say to us today? I think there's a perfectly legitimate sentiment that circulates sometimes. You know, there's a few of us who are on the platform and we get public attention. And there's a few who are gregarious and outgoing by personality, and they get plenty of public attention. There's a lot of people in this church, and I got, well, I'll re reference you to a bulletin insert later on. There's a lot of people in this church who serve quietly behind the scenes. And, you know, 
It's not unspiritual to serve faithfully, diligently, quietly behind the scenes and begin to feel neglected. You know, I can't get upstairs for communion because I'm always with the kids. My, so my wife, you know, I mean, you know, there were some Sunday school teachers who couldn't come up for communion because they're always with the kids. So now my wife brings communion down to them. But you could easily feel, I, you know, I got to come. To, I work all week and I come to the church and I serve and, and I get no recognition. It's a reasonable human sentiment. But I got good news for you. Even if we never acknowledge what you do, and that's our sin if we don't, even if we never acknowledge what, what we do, Jesus keeps track. And he knows. So what you do will be acknowledged. It may take a little while. But in the end, it will be dramatically done by somebody who knows it all. Let this be your encouragement if you struggle with the lack of recognition for all that you do. Jesus will one day honor you. And it lasts for eternity. Wrapping it all up. Authentic spirituality, spirituality that counts with God. We don't really need the widow to tell us what kind of spirituality counts with God. Because we have Jesus. Jesus who modeled the most substantial thing in service of God. Jesus who drew no attention to himself. He didn't seek recognition. Jesus who gained nothing compared to what he gave up. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us of a deeper example than the widow ever gave. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. He was found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God noticed God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that to the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus promises us that as we serve him, we will also reign with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these scribes from whom we can learn mostly how not to do spirituality. We thank you for this widow from whom we learn how to do spirituality. And we thank you most of all for Jesus who demonstrates more dramatically than anyone else could ever do how we might be authentically spiritual before you. Father, work in our hearts by your Spirit that we might follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Chuck. Please rise with me as we sing the song as a prayer, asking God to help us dedicate our lives to him. Amen.